Imagine you've just been selected to be in charge of a huge crew and a lot of responsibility. And the day that you're stepping into the roles as a leader, the entire crew is applauding the guy that's leaving. Not because they did such a great job, they're happy that they no longer have to work from that guy. The first thought going through your mind is, what on earth did I just walk into? That's what Mike Abershoff experienced the day that he took over as the commanding officer of the USS Benfold. And what you're gonna hear in this episode is how he was forced to lead differently, but more than anything else, you'll be blown away by the results when he started to lead by simply telling sailors, it's your ship, what would you do on this episode of Unbeatable? These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Mike Abershoff, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be on this episode of Unbeatable with me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey, I have been looking forward to this because I am a big fan of your first book. We're going to get into that book in just a second. Well, thank you. It's, uh, I'm, I'm very honored. Yeah. Well, I should say I also do this right out of the gate. Anytime somebody's on this podcast that is in the military, has been in the military, or a family of a service member, thank you so much for serving the country. It was uh, the honor of a lifetime, and um, and I think about our men and women in uniform each and every day. So do I, um, because you and I know what it feels like to be on that exactly end. Right. Of, yeah. Um, I also need to tell you, I, I approached this episode with a little bit of, uh, you know, just a little bit hesitant because I'm an army guy and you're a Navy guy and there's a rivalry. Maybe the folks that are joining this podcast or watching it are not aware of this, the, the world's oldest sports rivalry between army and Navy. You want to talk about that for just a second? So, um, it is the world's uh, longest sports rivalry. And uh, the Navy Navy had beaten Army in football for 14 yes, straight years. Yes, thank you for mentioning that on this podcast. And, um, yep. My nephew was a senior at the Naval Academy. He's now a lieutenant on a ship. But uh, I decided to, <clears throat> I splurged. I rented a box at M&T Stadium for the Army-Navy yeah. game. Yeah. Uh, took my mother, who just turned 100, and uh, all my Naval Academy roommates and, and their spouses, and uh, that was the game that Army beat Navy for the first time in 14 years. Oh, that makes me feel so good to hear that. And, and you know what? It was so touching. I think everybody, every Navy fan uh, was there happy for Army. Yeah. Um, but that happiness is over. And now we're back to wanting to, that, that's to right. uh, be like a rented mule. Um, but uh, for that one game, I... I was happy the army won. Of course. I, I, I want to make sure that people that are not familiar with this rivalry, it goes back more than a hundred years. And, um, when we're, when they're not playing football against each other, the, the branches of the U S military are all very much, uh, they, they support each other. They, they strongly, uh, encourage one another, but man, when it comes time for the army and Navy to play football against each other and throw the air force in there, it gets really, really heated and really, really uh, divided really fast. But we all come together yeah, afterwards. That's right. As soon as the game's over with, we all figure out how to come back together and how to fight together. We fight against each other on the gridiron and then with each other after it's over with. 
It's true. So you had a pretty impressive, by any standards, you have a pretty impressive career in the Navy. And I'm an, uh, uh, you know, a retired soldier who just looks back at leadership and sees some examples. And believe it or not, when I saw what you accomplished in the Navy, it really, really floored me. Um, I didn't have a chance to tell you this, Mike, but I teach a leadership course at the highest levels, um, at the PhD levels, and I will assign your first book as a text in some of my courses because I want leaders to see what's possible when you really, really understand the power of culture and when you recognize how much of a difference one guy can make. Well, that's uh, that's very heartwarming. Uh, I am... I, I obsess over my Amazon book reviews every day and my book is being used in many business courses around the country. And one day a 20 year old kid from university of Indiana wrote in and said, kind of a lame book, but my professor oh, read it for class. and then he said, but I've read worse. So I've taken that as a compliment that there are worse books out there to read for class. So, um, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, that's the review that you want on Amazon. Kind of a lame book, but I've read worse. Uh, exactly. Yeah, thanks for putting that out there for everybody in the world to hear, right? Exactly. Um, before we get into the binfold and what happened there, let's talk about your early days in the Navy. Can you kind of describe why you ended up in the U.S. Navy and what the first few years of your career as a sailor looked like? So, um I played football at the Naval Academy and it was a good thing I had a day job when I graduated because I was a mediocre football player. Okay. So I just got to stop now and ask what was the record of army versus Navy when you were playing ball there at the Academy? Uh, we won all four years. Oh, that figures. I shouldn't yeah. have asked. Sorry. Sorry. I yeah. even asked, keep going. Um, but you know, came up through the ranks and I, I guess in my early years I performed as I was trained, which was a, you know, top-down command and control uh -huh. my way or the highway. And um, the big event, I had two big events in my life. And one was getting selected to be the number two assistant to the Secretary of Defense. And his name was William Perry. Oh, yeah, of course. And um, I was with him every day for 27 months. And I saw real leadership in action. Yeah. And to him, it didn't matter what your rank was. Um, if you had an idea how to improve a process, he wanted to hear from you. And so I could give him recommendations on, on what we should be doing and he would listen. And he led with a sense of humility and I would come to call his leadership style excellence without arrogance. And it didn't matter who you were. You could be a janitor in the halls of the Pentagon or you could be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, but he treated you the same with respect and dignity. And, and instead of tearing people down, William Perry built people up and he gave people um, validation, which in my case led to me becoming a more confident leader yeah. uh, right before getting command of the ship. And then the biggest event of my life was the day I took command. And in the Navy, when there's a change of command ceremony, it's a big deal. Yeah. You know, work stops a month prior, crew paints the ship mm -hmm. from top to bottom. They, they pitch a tent on the flight deck uh, put out 300 chairs to the visiting dignitaries. Admiral comes and gives a long-winded speech about how great the outgoing guy is. Whole ceremony takes about 90 minutes. Yeah. And at the end of the ceremony, as my predecessor was leaving the ship for the final time with his parents and his wife and his kids, and as his departure was announced on the public address system, mm -hmm. 
my new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. Wow. And in my entire life, I had never heard of or seen such a blatant sign of disrespect. Yeah. And the first thought that went through my mind was, Uh as he was coming up through the ranks, and when I got transferred, I wonder how many of my sailors secretly cheered when I transferred. Yeah. And in that moment, it hit me. I didn't know, which meant I didn't have the self-awareness as to how I was being perceived by the people I was trying to influence. So in that moment, it hit me that the my way or the highway leadership style is dead, that anybody who continues to practice it isn't going to have the workforce of engaged people who will collaborate with each other and take ownership, but uh, instead will just you know do as they're told and, and nothing more. And no matter what line of work you're in, whether you're in military, government, or in the mm-hmm. private sector, you know these days you know, people are a hot commodity. And if they're not getting what they're looking for out of work, they're going to leave us. Yeah. That's what my sailors were doing when I took command or leaving us in droves. And so um, William Perry gave me the confidence. And uh, I had the uh, aha moment that I realized that before I could ask anybody else to change, I need to change. And so that's when I tried to become a more um, engaging leader in connecting with my crew. Let me go back to your time uh, serving with the Secretary of Defense. I don't know if people recognize this. I remember vividly this period of U.S. military history. And at this point, this is the largest organization in, on the planet, more people working for the U.S. military than any place else on the planet. And you're also working in the largest office building on the planet, quite literally, the Pentagon, five sides, five stories, five uh, rings. And uh, it is, it's a machine that can just chew people up and spit it out. So the fact that you get a chance to work at that close of a level with an exceptional leader like Perry is just unheard of. But the fact that Perry's the kind of leader that listens to advice at all levels, when he's got that many echelons in front of him or, uh, you know, working for him, that's unprecedented. Um, it was, um, it was the, the opportunity of a lifetime for me to, to learn. And, um, and it was there that I, you know, I get emails from people all the time. Will you mentor me? And mentorship in, in this country uh, has gone off track. Yeah, it's kind of a dying art, right? Well, so my job was to push paper. And every day a four foot stack of paper would come and it was my job to go through it and highlight what I thought was important for SECDEF to see. And I'd get this eight or nine inches, a uh, four foot stack of paper down to maybe eight or nine inches. And between me and the secretary is the senior military assistant. It's a yeah. three-star. It's our most important three-star job in the military. Colin Powell had the job uh-huh. as a three-star give you some example. And I would put my eight or nine inches of paper in his in basket. And from my desk, I could watch him work. And at the beginning, he would throw 90% of what I thought was important in the burn bag for destruction. And which meant I had a 10% effectiveness, yeah, right? And I wasn't getting any better. And I was demoralized. And I'm, I'm at this, the most prestigious job I yeah. could possibly have, and I'm failing at it. And I almost thought about resigning. And then it hit me before I quit. I'm going to try to train myself to think like the general. So every night at 8.30 when he went home from work, I would go into his office, take his burn bag, which where we put classified material for destruction. Mm -hmm. 
And I'd dump it out on his desk and I'd compare everything of mine that he threw away and compared it to what he sent on to the secretary. And what I wanted to do was to train myself to think like him, to find out what was important to him so that it could become important to me. And by doing that within about six weeks, I got that eight or nine inches of stuff down to maybe one or two inches. I'd sit there and I'd watch him work and he'd just rubber stamp it, send it right on to wow. the secretary. And so I went from like a 10% effectiveness rating to maybe 95%. Yeah. And um, I didn't say mentor me. I watched, I listened, I learned. And if there was something I didn't understand, you know, after the secretary had gone home for the day and things had quieted down, I would go in and say, General, I don't understand this. Can mm -hmm. you please explain it to me? To me, that's what mentoring and coaching is. You watch, you listen, uh, you learn. And then if you have questions, ask specific questions. But now people email, will you mentor me? And it's like, yeah. you know, come with me with specific questions that you right. don't understand. But don't say just mentor. Yeah. Sometimes what they're asking when you, they say, will you mentor me is, will you give me all of the answers to the test before the test questions, before I even read the test questions? Exactly and the truth right. is you're going to have to just watch and learn. Um, and uh, I can help you avoid a few mistakes that I made along the way, but watch and learn is the best way to be meant or to, to uh, learn from a mentor. So what that enabled me to do was to start anticipating what needed to be done in the office. Yeah. My role was historically an individual contributor. And uh, by watching and learning, um, I started to be able to anticipate what needed to be done before they ever realized they needed it. And I could be there with a the solution. And what happened was the general started to trust me for the first time. And um, he started delegating to me some of his lesser important responsibilities, uh -huh. like oversight of the security detail, the communications team, the trip planning team. I had 45 people reporting to me. Wow but historically was an individual contributor role. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting is the person I got the feedback from was his wife. And she came back to my, she was in the office one day. Okay. Came back to my desk and she says, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Paul, because for the first time since he's had this job, he comes home at night happy. And that's what leadership can get yeah. you when you develop your subordinates and they can start anticipating what needs to be done uh, before you ever ask for it, they can lift burdens off your shoulders so that you can focus on the important things and go home at night happy. Well, I was just thinking as you were talking, you're describing now my worst nightmare. I joined the army to put on a rifle and kick in doors and kill bad guys. And the idea of going through a four foot stack of paper every day in the Pentagon is a nightmare to me. But to hear from a boss's spouse hey, my husband comes home happy for the first time in this job because of you, man, that's all I would need to hear to say right. I'm, I'm right where I'm supposed to be doing right what I'm supposed to be doing. Exactly right. Um, so let's transition now to the time that you took over the USS Ben Fold. I have, I've read this story and I just stand in awe because I'm convinced what you experienced leaders at all levels in any kind of organization, not just the military, can experience. But I also recognize the history and the tradition of the U.S. military, especially the U.S. Navy. I recognize the authority that goes along with being the leader and the captain of a vessel, uh, of, of a Navy ship. And I, I sit back and think to myself, the raw courage 
that it took for you as the leader to do what you did just amazes me. So let's talk about the Benfold when you took over and why you made the really courageous decision to lead different. I don't know how, whether it was courageous or due to my insecurity, <laughs> but when I saw my predecessor getting cheered off the ship, in addition to being one of the worst performers, we had uh, the highest turnover rate yeah. of any ship in the Navy yeah. and one of the highest accident rates. And I think what most people... And you know, can I can I pause for just a second? All of those that are not leading out there, any leader already recognizes turnover rate means there's a problem here, and we we need to identify and fix the problem. When you have a really high turnover rate, it says that you have a really big problem. For those of you who are not in that kind of uh, world every day, maybe you didn't recognize how significant that statement from Mike was. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No problem. And um, it hit me that you know I'm probably never going to get promoted again. So what, what drives a lot of people is that promotion because that's the system giving you validation that you're on the right sure. track. And by the way, when you take over, this is your chance to make a name for yourself or this is your chance to really fall flat on your face, right? Lots of pressure on you. Well, and there's a high failure rate for yeah. commanding officers in the Navy. About 15% of all commanding officers get fired every year in the Navy. So it's a, it's a pretty high failure rate. Yeah. And, you know, I thought you know what, I may never get promoted again, but what's going to drive me from this day forward is never having to write the parents of any of my sailors telling them that their sons or daughters aren't coming home yeah. because we didn't give it our best. Right. So that attitude enabled me every day to, to stop worrying about, you know, schmoozing up the chain of command, stop worrying about my next promotion, but instead focus on my crew and get them to understand we're all in this together and we owe it to each other not to let us not to let us down. And so uh, all I did was to treat them with respect. I interviewed every one of them, and they collaborated and they started taking personal responsibility all for right. them. And you know, uh, I wish I could tell you it was brilliance, <laughs> but it was more fear of you know somebody getting killed or injured because I didn't do my job right forced me to continually um, challenge every aspect of our operation um, to improve just a little bit every day. And that's what I heard from William Perry. Be 1% better today than you were yesterday yeah. and 1% better today than you are tomorrow than you are today. Nobody's going to touch us. And so I couldn't change the rest of the Navy, but you know what? It's just incremental improvement every day. And uh, that way you don't upset the organization and, it people, you know, it becomes ingrained that we're just going to improve a little bit every day. That's fascinating because I had a company commander when I was still an enlisted guy in the Ranger Regiment in the U.S. Army who made the same kind of statement, said, listen, we're just going to up, up improve a little bit today on what we did yesterday, and tomorrow we're going to work on improving just a little bit. And for most of us, we were like, well, that just sounds too easy but after a few months of that, I started to recognize this is genius and we're making really, really big progress when you look at it over a course of months or even years. Right. So, let's and, uh, so when I interviewed every sailor, I said to them, and I had a crew of 310, and I said to them, I don't care what your age is and I don't care what your rank is and I don't care how long you've been here. If you see a process that can be improved just 1%, I want to hear from you. 
And so that's where it came from. I, and I looked each sailor in the eye, told him what we were about. Mm-hmm. You know, we're playing to win. We're not playing to come in number two. It's not about me. I can't do this on my own. If you see something that we can improve, you could be 18 years old. I want to hear from you. Well, now we start to get into the title of the book. And by the way, I want to talk about how this book has transcended the military and really broke out of military circles and been used in leadership circles all over the world. Um, But you started to lead different because, as you described already in this episode, leadership in the military and specifically in the Navy is very much top down. And now when your sailors are coming to you with a problem, you start to lead them differently. It becomes the title of your book. Talk about it's your ship leadership. So um, I, people were coming to me asking me how to do things. And, you know, I could tell them what the answer is, but then they would just become order takers. Mm-hmm. So I started out and I said, well, what do you think? If you own this ship, how would you do it? And I'll never forget the first sailor I said that to. And he said, Captain, nobody on this ship has ever asked me to think before. And I said, I'm asking you to think. If you own this ship, how would you do it? And he said, well, this is what I'd do. And I said, do it. And he turned in flawless performance. And it's like, um, what do you think eventually became it's your ship? I would say to my sailors, it's your ship. You know, you own it. If you see something that needs to be done, don't wait for me to tell you. Step up to the plate and do it. And, uh, you know, hopefully you're perfect. Uh, but you know what? I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. And if I can get 80 or 90% of the way there without me getting involved, I'll take that all day long. And they learn in the process. Next time they'll give me 92% and the next time yeah. 96%. Yeah. But if I tell them how to do it, they don't learn anything. Yeah. And by the way, there's technical manuals out there and there's plenty of instruction already written on how to do your job. Um, you could have always just said, go read the book, go read the manual. Um, but actually asking, giving somebody the freedom to have flexibility and put some personality in what they're doing, man, that can create some beautiful results. Um, this is the point, yeah. though, that I got to stop and ask you. I understand military chain of command. So I'm fascinated by trying to figure out what was the initial reaction from some of the leadership in that uh, at that point. Because that radical of a shift can be really hard to take root. Uh, what, is, what was it like to get buy-in from some of the subordinate leaders when you started taking a it's-your-ship approach? So you mean from my officers? Yeah, from, from the officers. Yeah, no, some, for some of your officers. So um, I got the idea to interview my sailors individually in the middle of the night. And I came to work that morning and started interviewing sailors. And uh, it took a month for the command master chief. He's the the senior enlisted guy on the ship. He represents the crew to get up the courage to come tell me that the officers and chiefs weren't with me, that they did not want me interacting with their people directly, and that they were fearful that I was tolerating narking and backstabbing. That's the point that can I pause and ask you to just drive that point home again? Because when you started doing this, it was so different that even some of the leaders below you were saying, we don't like what you're doing and we're really, really not comfortable with where you're going. So my last day working for the secretary of defense prior to getting command, he brought me into his office and sat me down and said, Mike, no matter how hard you try, your ship is never going to be perfect. He said, you're going to have disappointments every day. Mm -hmm. He said, whenever you're disappointed in an outcome, I want you to remember one thing. 
He said, assume your crew wanted to do a great job. And if you don't get the results you're looking for, don't blame them first, but instead look inward and ask yourself what you could have done differently or better. Did you clearly communicate the goals to them? Did mm-hmm. you give them the training necessary to be successful? Did you give them the time and the resources to do a great job? And did the process support them to deliver excellence? And when my master chief said the officers and chiefs aren't with me, the old me would have blamed them for being resistant <laughs> yeah, to change. Yeah. The new me looked inward and said, what did I do wrong? And it hit me. I never got them together. Yeah, didn't get buy-in from them. Was to get their buy-in. And so I got them together and I said, look, I'm not here to undermine you. There's no backstabbing. I'm not, what happened in the past is in the past. This ship is about the future. And I said, oh, by the way, when I interview your sailors, here are the three questions I'm asking them. What do you like most about this ship? What do you like least? And what would you change if you were the captain? And I said to them, I'm authorizing you to interview your people before they come up to see me and ask them those three questions. And if they give you ideas, you're authorized to implement them. And so what happened was the chief petty officers became my biggest Uh supporters on this ship because things started happening without their intervention. And things started getting done right the first time without them micromanaging. So the chiefs found that their quality of life improved when their people were engaged. So the chiefs became my biggest supporters on the ship after initially being my biggest detractors. Yeah, and if you were take to take the my way or the highway approach to leadership when those officers came to you and said, we don't like this, that would have just undermined everything that you were trying to accomplish. So the fact that you were willing to even go to them and to say, okay, here's the, here's the deal, guys. You have the authority to do what I'm doing. Um, basically kind of reinforced the way that you were trying to lead this, this, uh, this vehicle or this vessel, I mean, re- lead the ship. Um, so can we start to talk now about the gradual, but, but uh, by the time that you tr- change command, really, really significant changes that start to happen on the USS Benfold? Sure. Um, describe how, how things started when you started turning over authority and allowing the, your allowing sailors to make some decisions and have the permission to make some of those decisions. So, um, when you do that, you're always, I'm always asking myself, um, will discipline increase by doing this or will discipline decrease? Am I creating anarchy by allowing them to make their right, own decisions? Right. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's the military. And um, if I've got a missile coming at me and if I give the order to shoot, I don't want a sailor to raise his hand and say, Captain, have you thought of this? Right. I mean, there are times when leadership is directional, where in a crisis, you know, you have to tell people what to do. And if missiles are coming at me, I'm telling people what to do. But if we're disciplined, then they're going to execute mm-hmm. on that. So I'm constantly looking, uh, is discipline increasing or decreasing when people become more committed and engaged? And as you know, we have a form of discipline in the military. And in the Navy, uh, it's called captain's mast. That if somebody uh, breaks a rule or regulation, uh-huh. they come before me where I get to decide if you're innocent or guilty. And if you're guilty, I can throw you out of the Navy. I can reduce you in mm-hmm. rank. I can take half your pay for two months. You know, my powers are pretty absolute. Yeah. yeah. 
at during these judicial proceedings. And it wasn't until my last week in command of the ship that it hit me that we didn't have many disciplinary cases in the previous year. So I went back and looked at my predecessor's last 12 months, and he had 28 cases of which he threw 23 sailors out wow. of the Navy. Wow. And I look at my last 12 months, and I had five cases on four sailors. One guy rolled the dice and uh -huh. went twice. So I've got um, statistical evidence that discipline increases when people feel more connected and engaged to their work. And um, that's what I was looking for my entire tour. That's what kept me up at night is discipline increasing. And I didn't figure it out empirically yeah. until my last yeah. week. Which means for a lot of that time that you were commanding, you had to react, you, you were leading by your gut and believing in your heart you were doing the right thing, but you just didn't have all of the evidence to back it up. So I saw sailors smiling on the ship for the first time, mm -hmm. looking in the eye when talking to you, retention is improving, uh, performance is improving. So every metric was going in the right uh, way. Um, but I needed so I, I I try to examine every piece of evidence that I can yeah markers because um, that's how you can determine if a trend is deteriorating or not mm -hmm. and that if a trend is deteriorating I'm doing something wrong and I need to fix it so constantly looking at safety statistics is the trend continuing um, and I hadn't thought about the disciplinary statistic until my last week but it was just a valid, further validation of all the other uh, trends and statistics that I followed on the ship. Yeah. Um, I want to point out, this is while you're in, while the U.S. military is still at a period of war and you're commanding a combat vessel and you have uh, lots and lots of lives at stake. We already talked about that at the beginning, um, but you're also tinkering with culture. And culture, when it goes well, can do something beautiful in an organization. But when culture goes south, it can be tr terrible. I mean, it can be catastrophic. And in combat, it's too late. Uh, it's too late to fix a bad culture. So really what you're doing from the moment that you take command is starting to turn a culture around is really what you're doing. And people get wrapped around the axle about culture. I, I'm, I'm a very simple person. Um, I grew up in a house of 10 people, seven women and three men. We had one bathroom in our home growing up. Which and, means uh, you really never got a chance to go to the bathroom when you were a teenager. Well, sometimes not indoors, yeah. but that's a different right. story. Yeah. But, um, uh, when I get out of the Navy and buy my first home, it has four bathrooms in it. And I visit everyone every day just because I can. Yeah. So um, I'm a very simple person. And to me, culture comes down to this would you want your son or daughter to come work for you and see you in action every day? And if you're proud, you're on the right track. And if you're embarrassed, fix it. And all I did was fix everything that I was embarrassed about that I would be proud to have my son or daughter come be a part of um, because I'm asking parents to send us their sons and daughters. Yeah. I need to create a culture where I would be happy for my own nieces and nephews to to come be a part. Well, I assign your book because of the courage that it took to lead this way at the period of time that you were leading. But let's be honest, the proof is in the pudding and the results when you are ready to turn the ship over and change command. 
are staggering. So can you describe for everybody what the Benfold was like when you relinquished command? Well, before I, the quarter before I took command, our retention rate was 8%, meaning we were retaining 8% of the sailors uh-huh. eligible to reenlist. My last year in command, our retention rate was almost 100%. Wow. Um, we had the highest retention of any ship in the Navy that year. Uh, we had the lowest disciplinary statistic, came in number two for the Navy Safety Award. Um, wow. And we were awarded the Spokane Trophy after 15 months, which is the award for um, best ship in the Pacific Fleet. Yeah. And in years three and four after I left, USS Benfold won the award for best ship in the entire Navy. And so what we created was something that was sustainable, that didn't depend on me barking orders, but sailors taking ownership. Yeah. I hope people heard what you just said. After you were gone two or three years later, that ship is still outperforming every other ship in the Navy because of uh, some significant changes. And it went from one of the worst ships in the Navy to one of the best, if not the best, under the time that you served, uh, under the time that you led her. Um, And that's one of the things that I want students to hear when they read your book is just what's cape, what one person, one committed leader uh, is capable of accomplishing if they have the courage to do what you did. Well, and as I was coming up through the ranks, uh, I would see ships fall apart the day the commanding officer left, which meant that the ship was being held together by By one person, by one person. And that's not sustainable. Right. And so I've often felt that my final fitness report should be written six months or 12 months after I've left the ship. Cause then that would cause people to plan for the future instead of heroics yeah. day by day. Yeah. Okay. So now is a great time to say you really turned things around and for the sailors that were serving on the Benfold before you, they're cheering when their boss leaves and then you're able to turn the team around almost completely I am fascinated by team dynamics and fascinated by how culture works. And so I, I, Mike, you and I talked about this just before the episode began. I'd like to just talk about what it's like to be part of the nightmare team. You want to be part of the U.S. Olympic dream team where it's just the greatest players on the planet and nobody can touch you. And you're given the team everything that you got. But the truth is, there's a lot of talented people around you. They're just not working together. And as a result, every day at work is a nightmare instead of a dream. And you're not happy. You're not smiling. You can't wait to get out of this assignment or get out of this job. Can we talk about for just a couple of minutes what it's like when you're part of that team and how do you uh, change team dynamics when you're just a member but not in charge of the nightmare team? Um, so, um, the, the, the rest of the story is I couldn't change any crew member out when I took command, I had to play the hand that was dealt. Uh-huh. and the talent was there. I mean, these are smart kids. Uh, America doesn't understand how smart our people are in the military. And, uh, you know, when I joined, it was like, you know, join the military or go to jail. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, uh, me now too. we've got smart people, young right. men and women in the military, and that talent was already there, but they weren't, they were penalized if they got out of their lane. Yeah. And so I just found out about this maybe, you know, five or six years ago, that sailors had their own hiding places on the ship. 
that were off limits to others. If you found your hiding place, uh, nobody else was allowed to come and encroach on your space. And that's where sailors would go to hide during the day because it was such a toxic yeah. uh, culture and toxic environment. Uh, that was their happy place. And I never knew this when I had command of the ship. But that's what happens when you have a dis dysfunctional team is people hide. Right. And, um, and if you have people who are hiding during the day, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to excel. You may get by and Benfold got by. I mean, right. You, they were able to get underway every day, you know, when they were supposed to, but they, they didn't excel. And what I hopefully all your listeners, listeners, why they tune in is looking for nuggets as to how to excel yeah. and to control your own destiny. And well, that's what's at stake today in troubled economic times is what can you be doing now to make yourself, um, to put yourself in a position to control your own destiny. And it's, it's by being intellectually curious. It's by blending your tremendous technical skills with the ability to influence others. And you don't have to be in a leadership role to influence others. You can influence your team. Um, I've had people email me that say that, they had a dysfunctional team and they, they bought a, it's your ship for every member. And every week they would read a chapter and ask themselves, uh -huh. are we modeling these behaviors here? And if not, why not? And so they became, it became a way for them to communicate without embarrassing anybody and, and make their team a better team. So uh, anybody can be a leader. Um, uh, even if you're on the front line, yeah. you can, you can lead your shipmates. Well, your book, It's Your Ship, becomes a breakout success. And obviously, people in the military are standing up and taking notice of this book. But when it starts to hit the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, Fast Company, and lots of people that have no connection to the military are standing up and taking notice of your book, it's starting to uh, show you that there is a trend and that you're what you did with the Benfold is transferable in other industries. Well, um, when I took command and retention was so bad, my admiral said to me, Mike, you can't do anything about retention because they're leaving because of our low pay. And so <laughs> I did exit surveys to confirm that low pay was the number one yeah. reason why our people were leaving. And, you know, pay was important, but it was only number five on the list. Number one was they didn't feel like they were yeah. being treated with yeah. respect. Number two, they didn't feel like they were um, making a difference. Number three, they didn't feel like they were getting the training they needed. And number four, they didn't feel like they were being groomed for increased positions yeah. of responsibility. 2021, the year of the, you know, the great mm -hmm. resignation. McKinsey is out with a study in October 2021. Top five reasons why people are leaving their organization. Exact but same. I was going to say. Five reasons in yeah. the exact same order. And so it goes to show you that, uh, you know, we, we, we may have been ahead of our time, but what drives us, no matter what line of work we're in, is the same. Right. We want to be treated with respect. We want to feel like we're making a difference. We want to feel like we're being groomed for in increased positions of responsibility. And we want to be compensated for yeah, that. Yeah, right. Um, I, I, I'm thinking right now of the guy or the gal that's in a very toxic work environment. I'm also thinking about the listener who is got a toxic home life or toxic kind of people around them. And they're in the middle of what you, uh, experienced, what your crew experienced when you took command of the Benfold. 
and I just want to give them some practical advice. So I call this my high five. Let's say that we're giving some advice to a person who's right in the middle of that nightmare team, very toxic environment. They're not the leader, but they really want to make a difference and they're willing to give it a try. Let's talk about a few very practical things that they can do just to try to help turn the environment around from within the organizational team, not necessarily the coach or the person in charge. Um, you, you mind going back and forth with me a little bit on this one? Absolutely. So for me, number one on the list, if you find yourself in this toxic home life, toxic marriage, toxic work environment is first look in the mirror. Don't point the finger at your spouse. Don't point the finger at your boss. Perhaps they deserve that. First, ask the question, is, is there some things that I'm doing wrong that need to get changed? Because I can't control another human being, but I can control me. And if I'm doing some stuff wrong, I need to look at me. So that's the number one item that I would put on my list. What would you say somebody does if they find themselves as part of a nightmare team? Well, um, I had a relationship um, that didn't work out. And uh, when I asked the person why it didn't work out, the response was, you don't listen. And I was angry for three months. And then one night it hit me. You know what? I don't listen. As you get older and you gain more experience, uh -huh. you think you have all the answers. And I found myself telling people what the answer was. Right. Instead, instead of, of listening. listening. Yeah. And uh, William Perry taught me the importance of listening. And so um, it, um, it was a painful experience, you know, losing a relationship. Um, but it forced me to have the self-awareness that I need to listen more. Right. And so there's a chapter in my book called listen aggressively, yeah. which was a result of that failed relationship that I then used it to make me a better person and a better leader when I had command of the ship. And listening is becoming a lost art all over the yes. Western world. People are ready to respond before you even finish to say in what's on your mind. Um, I also want to tell people part of the problem within a team is always values. And if there's some dysfunction, you need to take a half step back and look at the values and say, do my values and their values line up? And if they don't line up, why don't they line up? And how can I help make the team values stronger? Um, that would be number three on my list. Anything else that you would suggest to somebody well, in that environment? The way, and there's, and, and that can be true, but how you bring the subject up can determine whether it's, yeah. you're going to have a successful yeah. conversation mm -hmm. or not. If you make the person, if you put the person on the defensive, it's not going to have a good outcome. But if you find a way to um, to have a a critical conversation without making a person feel devalued or guilty, mm -hmm. that that's how you can come to a conclusion or come to an agreement as to how you can go forward together. And so, what I've I, I hear from pastors, teachers, parents that they use the book chapter at a time, uh -huh. get each person to read it. What did you learn from it? What did I learn from it? And are we doing that here? And if not, how can we improve? And John, John Maxwell has a great book, yeah. 21 Irrefutable right. Laws of Leadership. I mean, it doesn't have to be at your ship. I would like it to be at your ship. It doesn't have <laughs> of to course. be. But if you can find a neutral ground by which to en enhance a conversation 
without making somebody feel guilty. That's how you get the best results. You just described number five on my list because I was thinking the exact same thing. How you communicate to the other person, how you communicate values is huge. In fact, it can make the difference on whether or not you make any progress. And I'll throw number four in there just to kind of round out this list of top five. For me, being part of a team means being working closely or being part of a group that differs from me. And instead of looking at why they're, or instead of looking at the differences and disliking the differences, learn to embrace the differences and see how those differences can make everybody better instead of uh, us versus them or, you know, me versus you approach in a team. Differences can make, differences can be beautiful in a team when you're willing to embrace them instead of um, trying to minimize them. I think the strength of an organization, I think it takes different skill sets, different genders, different races, um, different levels of creativity to make an organization work. And, and my friends laugh that if I had a ship of 310 people like me, mm -hmm. we would have never been able to leave the pier. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have even got anything accomplished, right? Right. But when you can bring a group of diverse people who have different skill sets, different levels of creativity, different viewpoints and being open to their viewpoint. That's how you create the strongest organization that you can. Yeah. And Mike, your first book, It's Your Ship, is not just for leaders. I mean, it's basically for anybody who's part of a team and wants to see things better, wants to improve. But you didn't stop there. Um, book two, It's Our Ship, um, it starts to uh, explain a little bit more detail, but I love number three. Um, I think everybody needs to go pick up the first book, but you also need to get your third book, get your ship with a P together. Um, so can you describe uh, what you are attempting to, to, to communicate in It's Our Ship or book number three, get, get your ship together? Well, It's Our Ship, it was, so It's Your Ship is what I learned in the Navy. Mm -hmm. And It's Our Ship came out about 10 years after I got out and was working in the private sector uh -huh. lessons I learned in the private sector and how it could be applied and get your ship together is kind of like, um, you know, I looked at 10 leaders and wrote a chapter on each leader and, 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 and their wisdom. Right. Um, but clearly um, it's your ship is. So the publishers thought I might sell 20,000 copies. It's now sold over 1.3 million copies and it's published in 10 different languages and, um, and by the way, it's everywhere. When I, when I look at leaders there in every walk of life, they're reading your book. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's quite an honor. Um, but I get emails from parents who, um, use it with their teenage kids mm -hmm. and get them to read a chapter. And then after they read the chapter, the parent asks, what did you learn? And what lessons did you learn? And it gives the parent an opportunity to have a discussion with the child and impart some of his or her wisdom. Because if the parent tells the kid what to do, you know, the kid's going to do. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I'm getting heartwarming stories that it's an opportunity for, you know, a dad to connect with his sons where they, they read the chapter, they report back to him what they learned, and then he can fill in real world experiences so that they can not grow, have a way to communicate and uh, grow stronger together, but also to have a learning experience for the kids. And uh, so the book isn't just for business. Um, 
and I'm finding that people in any walk of life can use it um, to, to make a difference and in, to increase the quality of their life. Yeah. So the reason I asked you to be on this podcast is not so that this episode would be about leadership and all about how to turn a culture around, but because your first book has that kind of universal approach, like no matter what walk of life you're in, if you find yourself part of a team and that team is just not performing as well as you know it could perform, there are some things that you can learn from Mike Abershoff's book, It's Your Ship. Pick up the copy of the book. Um, Mike, Any, uh, how would if, if people want to know more about you personally, how do they find out more about you or about your books? Well, um, I've got a website, apgleadership.com. And I've got a, a small consulting group. We help organizations with culture change and, and retention and, and all sorts of things. Um, but with the, my father passed away shortly after It's Your Ship came out. Mm -hmm. and with the royalties um, from It's Your Ship, I decided to buy my mother a new house. And she was 85 wow. at the time. And I'm thinking she'll be in the house five or six years. I can sell it. She turned a hundred three, three months ago <laughs> and right. now she wants the kitchen remodeled. Yeah. So, um, it's time to write a fourth book is what you're saying. It's your ship. Yeah. I'm going to be working till I'm 80, yeah. uh, supporting her, but, um, it's your ship makes a great holiday gift, anniversary gift, birthday gift. But anyway, um, it's an honor for me to be, uh, to be on your show. Yeah. I don't say this very often, but this book is a book that virtually everybody can pick up and learn from because it's a book where all of us are from time to time. And chances are, if you're listening to this episode, you're part of that team that's not performing at their best, pick up a copy of It's Your Ship. Thanks for giving me some of your time today, Mike. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, we'll see you around. Hey, I will continue to assign the book, It's Your Ship, for many years to come, not just because of the results that Mike got as a leader, but the courage that it took for him to lead different in the United States Navy. I'm glad that you joined us for this episode of Unbeatable. If you found this podcast for the first time, we would love for you to follow along. Just go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you've been listening for a while, why don't you rate us? You can rate us on social media and tell everybody what you think about this podcast. Hey, by the way, we are nearing our first year anniversary. We are just a couple of weeks away from one year of weekly podcast episodes from Unbeatable. And we're going to do something different, and I need your help. We're going to do fan favorites from the first year. So on social media, why don't you just tell us what were your favorite moments in that first year of Unbeatable? And we'll put those moments together on episode 54, just a couple of weeks from now. Thanks for joining us. I hope you have a great week. See you right back here next week.